I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured on Celluloid. We're back. We had one of our, you know, we are prone to hiatus. Hiatuses? Hiatuses, Andrew. We are prone to them. We've had them um, here and there over the last year. This one was your fault. I don't blame you, but it was your fault. But all that matters is we are back, as promised. We're going to talk about Christian Petzold, the fascinating German director today, and five of his movies in particular, kind of a wider overview of his work, who he is as a filmmaker. And I really can't wait. I'm curious to hear Andrew's thoughts and to really get in and unpack all of that. So first of all, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm well. I retired to the beach for a week where i spent my days yeah. drinking beer watching the euros and watching college baseball now i'm back starting a, a new job during the week watching movies during the morning and the evening and really just getting back to the grind now th- this in particular grind was just oh so pleasant you you are a man of like 100 miles per hour you know it's always it's on to the next thing it's it's non-stop this is what everyone senses, I know, when they hear your voice, they listen to you, they're like, that's a man, it's a man with purpose, that's a man who's going places, and it is in fact true. So, over the past week, you have gone to all corners of Germany through, um, through history and time in the works of Christian Petzold, and... This is a filmmaker that I first encountered, I probably first heard of around the time Phoenix came out, which was in around 2015, I think, here. It might have been 2014 in the US. And Phoenix was one of these kind of really buzzy works of international cinema that kind of becomes a wider breakout from festivals, gathers word of mouth, and you feel like is really kind of moving around the world, gaining an audience. Petzl is a filmmaker who had been at work and making very good movies, movies that have, I guess, um, retrospectively got larger audiences for quite some time. But Phoenix was something of a kind of an international breakout. For me, then, the first film of his I saw was Transit. Um, Transit came out, I believe, in 2019 here, maybe 2018 elsewhere in the world. And I've been completely just, you know, entranced by that film completely hypnotized by it under its spell really since the moment i saw it it just lives under my skin i think about it all the time and as a result it has made me go back and watch true petzold's filmography um re-watch true i think i've watched most of his movies multiple times now and he's just a filmmaker that I've really come to deeply love, and someone who's just ideas about films. Those that, if you're to read an interview, he's a great interview, um, or to watch him kind of at a press conference or a Q&A, he's really interesting to hear talk about movies. But so many of those ideas really kind of seep into his work in an obvious way that isn't necessarily always true of every director. So for me, I was like, I've already suggested to Andrew like three or four times he watches Transit. I don't know if you remember all of this, if you know this. It made my top 10 um, for 2019. Probably it was my list. It made our streaming early in the pandemic episode where it was like picks from places. I believe was on Criterion Collection at the time. I put it in there. I just kept trying and trying. You weren't doing it. So here you are watching all of, well, not all of, but five movies from Christian Petzold that I handpicked for you. I was a little nervous. I was hoping you'd enjoy the experience. I ho- was hoping that 
it would be something that you wouldn't find to be a waste of time that you could kind of slip into and be like, yeah, this is something different, but it's also something that, you know, I needed in my life. So true, the other side of that journey, how do you feel? I feel rewarded. I mean, this is where I think four for four, maybe in this exercise, five for five, if, if you count Malik, we've got a few uh, series that we've done where it's really you introducing me to a director, me being the proxy for our audience, the people that might be going in with fresh eyes, not saying all of you will, but you know, uh, Christian Petzold's not something that's uh, playing at the the local multiplex. It's also showing a Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so for sure. being influenced or introduced to him for a first time was really rewarding. And I think I, I get there was some risk there because he's a very distinctive filmmaker. And I could say that maybe his films aren't for everyone. I would argue they should be, but I think he hits on, first of all, I want to say he's the master of adapting material into something that's uniquely his own, as we'll get into later. I think four of the five films that um, we're going to discuss today, he adapted either from loosely from a novel or from a myth or from a, a movie. a movie yeah and and so he manages to take influences it seems like and just create something that's entirely his own which is incredibly impressive and give them each a unique feel but that there's still a through line where they all feel like a christian petzold movie i mean i started with yella i finished with unadina and the entire way through each time you're watching it, especially when you do it in quick succession like I did, is you still feel like you're watching a Petzold movie. And so for a director to... You feel like you're watching the same movie, right? Which this is something I really love. This is this is me. This is my thing. I want a filmmaker who is just so completely and utterly beholden to their own obsessions that they, you know, in many ways are making the same movie over and over again. All of the core teams are running through that. And what they do is they find new and interesting ways to really tell the same story or explore the same material. And I think he is one of the primary examples of kind of top tier working filmmakers in the world who does that. Did you feel that specifically? Like uh, there is definitely a feel of a Petzold movie, but could you go further and say that, you know, they all feel a little, a little samey, not in a, not in a negative way, but it is very much grounded in, He's got very set ideas and interests that he's exploring. And it's just about, well, how is he going to spin it this time? Exactly. And I, th- I think that's all true. Obviously, a lot of that sameness comes to f- his frequent uh, work with certain actors and, and actresses. But it's also, it is just that that entire feeling. And he, he manages to take a lot of um, themes and ideas that I like from the movies that typically appeal to me the la la lands the uh before sunsets of the world will say the 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 notion of human connection and how we come in and out of each other's lives whether that's through love friendship uh being an acquaintance hatred in some cases in some of these films uh work partnerships he takes all of these basic ideas of human connection and how we enter and leave one's lives and he takes them through these entirely unique settings whether it's a period drama in germany or whether it's a ambiguous time frame uh set in france or whether it's in a almost mystical world or a almost kind of eerie horror-based world for lack of a better term and he takes all these same things and just throws them on the canvas 
in these different settings. And, and each time you feel like you're watching something that's familiar if you've seen the rest of his films, but it also comes away feeling like something that's an entirely new spin. And to manage to watch every movie and you can say, oh, this feels like him, but also be taken in a different direction and feel something new is is pretty impressive. It's very impressive. And I, I think to to kind of get a sense of that, and before we go into some of those ideas and themes, which really I think the most part this episode will be about, I I am aware that there may be quite a lot of people listening that if they if they do know who Christian Petzold is and maybe they've seen a film, maybe they've seen Phoenix or Transit, but they they won't necessarily have seen all of his work. Although now is a good time, as I mentioned um, at the end of the previous episode leading into this, Mubi pretty much worldwide are doing a, a retrospective on Petzold right now. It is as close, I think, as you're ever going to find to his in, entire works streaming. Um, certainly, I think all but one of his feature films is currently streaming on Mubi. Uh, along with a couple of his early shorts as well. So if you are curious or if you've he's a filmmaker you've heard of or you've seen one or two of his movies and you want to dive in, now is certainly the time. Just in terms of accessibility, it's it's right there to to be kind of gone and got at and watched. But to to really get a sense, and this is what we want to do, is give a sense of who Petzold is, what his movies are, what makes them interesting, what makes them different, and really why you should watch He's someone that I think you have to start with the specifics and with the details and with his own background because he is a filmmaker that all of that just kind of pulses through his work. He was born in 1960, I believe, in West Germany. But he was born to parents who were refugees who came across from East Germany to West Germany. So he had this kind of... I guess there's this dichotomy in his life from a very young age where he was an, a native West German, yet at the same time, his family came from the East, his parents were refugees, so he was both, you know, fitting in and never quite seeming to fit in uh, at a time when, you know, the divides between East and West Germany and East and West larger than that were probably more pronounced than they've ever been that certainly informs a lot of his work it's something we'll talk about as we move forward how he progressed from there to become a filmmaker so he studied at um dffb the the berlin film and television academy and along with the likes of other filmmakers like angela shanelek marinada uh thomas arslan they they kind of reinvented, not in any kind of sit-down, formal way, but just through the kinds of movies they were making, they kind of reinvented what German cinema was going to be. And because of the timing, because of the political waves in Germany at that time, what the reunified German cinema was going to be, coming from the early 90s through into the 2000s to what we see today. And that kind of grouping of filmmakers has come to be known as the Berlin School. Anything you read about Petzold, any interview you, you come across, he is likely to be asked about the Berlin School or the Berlin School will be mentioned. 
again, it's worth noting, it's not something kind of really structured. It's not a kind of... Um, it's not the kind of Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, Inaritu dynamics that coming from Mexico City and really putting a, a whole national cinema on their back with something that is much more structured and something that is much more united in their own collaborations. It doesn't have that energy that kind of came from those group of filmmakers in Mexico. But what Petzold and his contemporaries in Germany at that time did is they basically reimagined German cinema to be something that was much more overtly political to be something that was much more kind of ingrained in realism, but then also allowed room to diverge away from that. They brought German cinema back to something that was much closer to its roots. And I, when we talk about, you know, Petzl's influences, I'm really what his films make up of. It is clear for everyone to see that he is German filmmaker, true and true, not just in where his films are set and the kind of stories he wants to tell, but the influences. They're influences that, you know, are maybe best associated with Hollywood, but they came from the German filmmakers who fled Germany during the war, came to Hollywood and really kind of set the framework in place for what became the modern Hollywood system and built Hollywood upon these genres that, were just kind of the bread and butter of German filmmakers and the bread and butter of German cinema pre-war. So at the DFFB, not only did Petzl come into contact with these other filmmakers where a kind of greater new German cinema movement started to come to the fore, but he crucially also um, met the man who went on to become his mentor, and that is Harun Faraki. Harun Faraki is was i should say he passed a few years ago a lecturer he was a filmmaker he was someone whose work generally trended towards the more art house and the more avant-garde and harun faraki is crucial in terms of understanding what petzl's work becomes because as we'll talk about as we get through to these movies there are so many just really bold and interesting choices where something that's very conventional suddenly is doing something that's unlike anything you've ever seen. And that's a kind of common tension at the heart of his movies. And throughout basically his entire filmography, right up until Transit, even though Transit was an idea that was originally developed uh, with Harun Faraki, and it was, it was Harun Faraki who gave him the original source novel that he ultimately adapted in a pretty loose way, and um, what became the movie Transit from, you're getting a sense of basically the way Petzold just reimagines material and at a much more kind of basic level, how he views cinema. So for Petzold, one of the things that he frequently talks about and is certainly at the heart of his movies and came to mind for me when you mentioned pretty early, right from the jump, that, you know, maybe he's not a filmmaker for everyone or he might not be to everyone's tastes. I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had about him in that regard because he does kind of tread a needle, but he treads it from the extremes because there's like really clear and obvious genre in all of his films. In all of his films, you can identify movies, you can identify styles of storytelling, and you could say, oh, this movie's clearly working within that tradition. And yet he will mix it with something that is slightly more art house 
often more slow cinema his movies are often quite still quite quiet even in a very literal sense of their sound design and that gives an impression of a much more gradual build-up of story a gradual telling of the story momentum builds very slowly even though it often does come to something of a crescendo with the kind of stories he still he tells so he starts from a very simple point and things will gently and gradually move and build and we are going to mostly deal with characters as films are very much character driven character based but they are working within a framework and within a frame of reference of the much larger history of cinema and the much larger history of mainstream cinema and the reason i bring this in at this point is i mean harun faraki as petzl tells it his advice to him was always you should be looking to experiment but generally what an artist does when they're looking to experiment is they go and they look to the avant-garde so they start from a base that's kind of in the middle that's kind of mainstream that's pretty accessible and then they say what's interesting over here what's interesting over here on the fringes that i can bring into this work and make it something new and her faraki basically worked in the complete reverse of that and you can see that in Petzl too, which is it's always kind of borrowing from the mainstream to make something that bit more experimental. I think Transit is a great example of that, where you've got something that has a feel of something quite traditional and noirish. Um, you've a feel of like a spy story or a kind of a, a traditional war thriller. And yet it's doing something completely different with time, with its ideas of setting. And it's it's building a much larger picture that at once, you know, I think anyone could sit down and watch and be like, oh, this is interesting. You know, I'm, I'm gripped by this. I'm curious as to where this story is going. While also then, you know, if they're not used to something that's maybe just a little bit more adventurous, they'll then be left baffled pretty quickly by wait, hold on a minute, like, what is going on? What, is this, is this World War Two? but it's set now? I don't understand it. And all of this kind of leads to just a really interesting world of Petzold's movies where you get this very experimental style, but it's not experimental in the kind of way where I feel, at least, it's an instant barrier, where it's an instant barrier to entry if you're not well-versed in ex-filmmaker and ex-writer you just can't you're not going to understand this you're not going to be interested in it i don't really feel like that's how petzold's films work i think there's something there primarily because his movies work on a really kind of deep emotional guttural level as character pieces but also there is always that little bit of you know leaning to something more mainstream i'm not necessarily saying it's like you know He's always kind of looking to borrow from the day's top 10 at the box office. But whether it's classic cinema, whether it's Hollywood cinema, things that maybe a lot of his art house European peers wouldn't do, he very much meshes that all together to create his own his own vibe, his own work. And as we said from the beginning, just something that is kind of uniquely Christian Petzold. And I don't know how long it took you once you start watching these I would imagine you watch them chronologically, I think. So probably by the time you've you've watched Barbara, you're like, okay, like there's there's a vibe here. I get it. There's a vibe here. There's a vibe here in Yella. It's here in Barbara. They're both completely different. I mean, in terms of one's a period piece, one's a contemporary film. 
but at the same time you're getting this kind of common feeling that his movies give you yeah that's for sure um it's definitely a consistent feeling that you can't quite put your finger on honestly though i would almost separate yella from the the four other films we're talking about here that one for some reason stands out to me on its own and that was probably the the only one where yes that feeling still exists but i still i i don't know the the feeling i got while watching barbara phoenix transit and nudadina was that there's this like a weight of the world dramatic energy hanging over me kind of especially in the the middle three there whereas yella there was this creepy unease in that i Mm -hmm. i was being dropped into a world that looks like it should be something that's recognizable but there's clearly something a little off and uh I think I'd pair it and Undina. Okay, I yeah, mean, that's, both, that's better. In in terms of their subject matter and in terms of some very literal events in plot, I think there's really clear and obvious and probably deliberate connections on his part. But look, you're right. I mean, um, both Barbara and Phoenix, along with Transit, they make up an unofficial trilogy of sorts. I think it's love in the face of oppression or something is what Petzold himself has decided to coin uh for for that collection of films which sure that works but there is i i think there's a maybe a an inclination to link transit and undina because of the actors carrying over in them where really it is possibly going back to something more true to what he did in yell which is interesting i mean he has spoken part of why transit like there are lots of interesting reasons and we get to transit we'll talk about his decisions to basically set it in contemporary marseille as a as a war story that is also set in wartime marseille that sounds very confusing and it is and it isn't i i think it's very natural like I, the first time i saw it i knew nothing about it i don't know if you'd got to do any kind of advanced reading at that point but i knew nothing about it and you do kind of you you sit in and you just kind of work your way into it. And I mean, I don't have a problem. I quite like it is making you work. You've got to pay attention and you've got to just kind of try to get your bearings and feel your way around the world. But to the point, part of the reason why that happened is because he was so sick of period pieces after the two films before that, that he's just like, no, I just wanted to, I wanted to contemporary locations from now on. I don't want to have to worry about a lot of the other stuff around that and the baggage that brings. Well, that to to your point, I think after going through this exercise and having this discussion, when I uh, get my big screen in the backyard and invite people over for a two night film festival, I'm going to pair Yella and Unadina, and then I'm going to do a a, tri- a triple bill uh, Barbara Phoenix or Transit. Uh, who's who's coming to this? Who are you inviting over? Um. A bunch of bu- yeah, it would pretty much have to be you. Uh, Jordan was supposed to watch Phoenix today, so we'll see when he drops the two point five on the uh, uh. on the letterbox. Uh, we can see if he's invited to the dinner party or not. Nevertheless, uh, Transit I thought was incredibly successful because it, it's not as it's not as creepy as Yellow, but I still did have a sense of unease in that movie just because I kept forgetting. Sure. Like I kept forgetting what was happening. I'm like, okay, this is World War II, but it's not World War II. So I would be so honed in on 
the process and the characters and and Paula Beer and Franz Rogowski. You're doing your best. I'm doing my best. <laughs> Be so locked in on. You're actually you're you're really close. You're really close. So it's not you don't need to. You're doing very well over the history of the podcast. I don't think you need to doubt yourself of pronunciation as much as you do. Yeah, I was born this way. But nevertheless, you just you get so locked in on the story and the way the plot's progressing and just these, like I said, characters working their way in and out of one another's lives and instant connection and and, and all of that, that what's happening doesn't feel more like a a historical story set in a modern setting. It feels almost like a new story in an alternate reality, but you still have all that context of what you know from history and what, uh, what it was like when the Nazis were occupying certain areas of France. So I think whether or not the choice was entirely or not entirely made because he was sick of period pieces, I think it's a really effective tool in telling this story in a way that's challenging but also engaging and entertaining, really. To your point, maybe I'm giving audiences in the world a lot less credit than I should in saying that these films might not be accessible. I mean, if if you like movies, I think you're going to like... I think it's it's as simple, right, as the kind of person who is listening to this in the first place is going to be prepared to give it a try and may find something that they want to watch or they enjoy watching. I think the people who just have no interest have not stumbled on, based on our previous episodes, the movies we talk about, they're probably not listening, Andrew. So, if you're... I I don't think we necessarily have a hardcore following who have seen everything in advance, but I think we have some open-minded people who are willing to go along on the journey with us and willing to just be like, oh yeah, I'll watch any movie. I'll watch any movie. I'm open to take in art, no matter where it's from, what language it's in. I'm open to see something different. Well, I, I think what's so rewarding about watching his movies, especially if you know very little plot details, is just a large degree of the enjoyment I got out of them is just being dropped into this world. There's not a lot of exposition at the beginning of his films. You are just plopped down into the world and you go from it. Transit might be the one where we get the most kind of figuring out what's going on. And I guess Phoenix as well, but you are kind of just dropped in on what's happening. And especially in Yella and Unadina, you're kind of like for the first half of the movie being like, what's going on here? And like, where is this going? And then you always end up in a particularly surprising place in my opinion. Um, And I think that's half the fun. So maybe when I was saying inaccessible, I was just saying that, that his movies are strings that you need to unravel. And the, For the sure. unraveling um, may, be, may feel slow, but it's 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 not. <laughs> and you may never fully unravel it. I think that's that's something to get there. I, I There's a difference between being like his movies don't have a resolution or you won't come away feeling they have a resolution. But I, I've said this, I think, on this podcast before at some point. I don't know when it came up. To me, there's not a, a filmmaker working who is better at endings than Christian Petzold and who just thinks about his movies and thinks about the progression of the characters and, you know, a suitable end point, the most impactful, the most moving end point for his stories in a way that he does. 
but there is something there's something that's very difficult to put your finger on very difficult to describe about what makes him just so different like we will get we'll talk through transit in particular in some more detail later and he didn't entirely just decide i don't want period pieces anymore so this is how we're going to make this movie i'll go into some more detail on that as we get there but it's maybe the best example of something that's in all of these films which is this kind of like strange dreamlike quality like every every petzal movie does feel like something you could be dreaming like i mean it would be the best most interesting dream that anyone's ever gonna have but there there is just something there it's it's that thing of feeling just like so close to being real and yet so far away from being real at the same time which is like it's cinema it's the idealized it's like what is what if you could make the best kind of cinema what what impact would that have on people's minds what would that make them feel i really think that goes a long way towards that and if you watch any kind of conversations with petzl there's this anecdote that he seems to just every single time it will come up so i'll ask him a question there'll be unrelated questions so it feels like he just wants to tell everyone this particular detail but he'll be asked some question about some, you know, what something to do with story. How do you come up with this kind of story? Where do you start from where? And he'll always go to, you know, there's a story that uh, Rossellini and Eisenstein, they used to have like, um, I think he said nine meter squared. That can't be right, Petzl. But nine meter squared beds. And what they would do is they would come up with the most simple story idea. They would go, they would lie down in their bed, they wouldn't fall off into a deep sleep, but they would try to linger in a place between, you know, being awake and being asleep, and they would let the idea ruminate in their head there. This is how Christian Petzl makes his movies. This is genuinely how he comes up with his stories for his movies. He picks out just one very specific but very simple detail. And then he goes, he lies down in what he assures us is his giant bed. And he doesn't quite sleep. He doesn't quite, you know, stay awake. And he just lets the idea wash over him. And then he takes what it's kind of refiltered through from that experience. And he goes, puts pen to paper and shapes the story from there. I mean, a similar, a similar thing in terms of his adaptation in talking about transit, I mentioned earlier that his his friend, his mentor, Harun Faraki, gave him a copy of Transit. That's where he first came across, where he first read it, and he spent years, you know, planning to adapt this this book into a film. And he spent years and years originally thinking of it as a period piece, going through different drafts, different variations, and Harun Faraki died. The story goes, you'll actually like this. He was on a trip around California with his with his son, with his teenage son, and they had recently seen Richard Linklater's Boyhood, and his son had become obsessed with Boyhood. So according to Petzold, they went in search of the lake from Boyhood. Um, they went looking for it. They never actually found it. But on this trip around California... Basically, while at night when his son would be sleeping, Petzold would work on his draft of transit. And one day they went somewhere, they went to 
do something, see something, eat, whatever it might have been. He left his laptop in the car. It was like 90 degrees and the laptop caught fire and the original draft of transit was destroyed. So instead of going back to the text, he doesn't like to do this in any case. If he's adapting a book, he's adapting a movie, whatever it might be. He just, I'm going to do it from memory. I'm just going to loosely adapt it from memory. And what my vision of it is going to be is going to be what the adaptation will be. And I think those two kind of details, one in terms of adaptation, but two just in terms of finding a germ for a story and fleshing it out, are really kind of illustrative of the way his brain works, but then also the kind of the headspace he puts the audience into and this kind of dreamlike state, this mood he captures in his films which isn't something that you will kind of readily come across in the works of too many other directors, uh, living or dead. It's, it's quite unique. It's quite an achievement. And in its own right, I think it, it makes his films worth watching. Now, one of the things I thought when you were talking about Transit 2 and, you know, for all of the other things that as an audience member, you might be trying to, you might be trying to figure out and get a feel for, the thing that kind of, anchors you and hooks you and this is what's there in all of his movies in transit's case the film is really a melodrama it's really a romance you know you could also call it a war movie but probably first and foremost it's a melodrama it's a romance petzl loves genre he loves traditional genre for all of the art house kind of traits that are very much at large in his work he loves genre and he filters all of his stories all of his ideas true traditional generic ideas but also just the kind of some of the most notable examples of them that have ever been kind of set to film so he i you know if i was to say to you just you may have come across this yourself you may have read it you may have thought of it if i was to say to you to name one film you can think. I'll give you a few seconds. Name one film that may have entered your head. Like, film from the cross the span of movie history. One famous film that when you were watching Petzold's films could have come into your head. Did anything? Is there anything that jumps out or you could call to mind? No. Do we know that I've seen this film? For sure. 100%. You'll kick yourself when I say it because you'll be like, yeah, yeah, I, of course. I could see that in his movies. Uh, go ahead, I've botched this. Vertigo. Okay. Vertigo, okay. which is which is part of, obviously, probably why Petzold speaks to me, because I'm completely obsessed with Vertigo. But, like, Phoenix was very obviously um, a Vertigo remake of sorts. You know, there's lots of other ideas at its heart, but this idea of a man remaking a woman in the image of someone, it was that story, but with a an even more interesting twist and spin on it than what it was in Vertigo. Uh, I believe it, actually he also, his first collaboration with Nina Hoss, I think it was a TV movie he's made that I haven't seen. Names escaping me now. Toterman is the German name, um, which is Dead Man, but it's not, Dead Man is not the English name. Anyway, that was also a remake of sorts of Vertigo. So you've got all of these just kind of, you know, classic hallmarks of cinema that are there they're really kind of deeply rooted they're embedded in his work and they come to the fore very often the thing though that is there more than anything else is melodrama and noir and 
this comes down to, I guess, that he's a German. He's a German filmmaker. And as I think would be the same case if I came from a country with a similar history and with similar cinematic history and the, particularly the kind of the traje- trajectories that key German filmmakers' careers have taken and the reasons that they've gone that way tr- past, like that's a country that has such a wealth, such a rich history of cinema. And yet, this is part of, you know, why the Berlin School came to be viewed as a movement, came to be viewed as something re-energizing it. Because for the most part, and even now, contemporary, I think a lot of certainly casual movie fans, but go beyond that to people who are into movies. If you're like, oh, name some, you know, working German directors that you like. I think the list would be pretty short. German cinema isn't what it used to be in a lot of ways for a whole variety of reasons. But the lineage of German German cinema is what built Hollywood. And I guess the best way to to break that down in terms of what it means to Petzold is a quote. Um, I think this was in a talk he gave at um, the Lincoln Center, which is, Fassbinder found the films of Douglas Sirk, and I found the films of Fassbinder a generation later. So, that is really the arc of German movie history and how it's carried on. So, you have the kind of the early masters of melodrama and noir. You know, multiple of them have tried their hand at both. You've got people like Billy Wilder, you've got Douglas Sirk, Edgar G. Ulmer, uh, Robert Siermak. All these people who were successful in Germany prior to the war fled Germany and went on to be like founding figures and kind of mainstay figures in Hollywood. Someone like Fritz Lang could also, I guess, um, fit that bill, particularly when it comes to, to film noir. And all of the work that they did was eventually filtered through, particularly say someone like Cirque, through the work of Fassbinder where Fassbinder's work is, for the most part, pure melodrama. And for filmmakers of, you know, Petzold's age and coming true at the time he did, in the Germany he did, Fassbinder would have been the obvious inspiration, the obvious place to look to. And so you've got this kind of clear, you can track from one to the other. You've the lineage of German cinema and the lineage of German melodrama. So... Where I think outside of Germany, maybe Spain, Mexico, I think melodrama is a dirty, dirty word. People hear melodrama and they look down their nose at it, they think of like soap opera, and they think of something very different to really what it often is at its kind of, its cinematic root. And that's something that Petzl taps into, the kind of you know, notions of fate and coincidence and that when romance is involved, anything can happen and nothing is quite, you know, too implausible as long as at the center of a story, you've got these two people or you've got one person's desire to get to another person or to win another person back. Like in that scenario, what isn't believable? I think everyone from their own life can be like, yeah, you know, I can believe anything in that kind of situation. I could believe anything for, for that kind of person. And that's what grounds his movies. That along with then, you know, 
an atmosphere that is very much a film noir. His stories are not entirely kind of true to traditional noir, but there is frequently a feeling, frequently an atmosphere. Like you talked about something in transit where there is kind of an unsettling atmosphere. Transit is not a noir, but there is kind of, there are breadcrumbs of noir there. There certainly are throughout most of his movies, um, right from like the beginning of this exercise for you, Yella too. So you get this filmmaker who is making something that, you know, his movies are completely modern. They're reflective of the new modern unified Germany, even while they're reflecting on the past of both East and West Germany and everything that has taken place there over the past hundred years. But it's, it's all filtered through these classic German filmmakers, but more importantly, the genres that they made like world famous, that they made readily accessible and in melodrama and noir, you're, you're getting something again that as you say, like you watch transit and you're like, there's something there's something there. There's something there between the dynamics of the characters, between the relationship, between just the feeling of romance. It's easy. It's recognizable. It's something that basically across cultures people respond to. Yeah, something is, uh, I, I guess, in in transit, the almost love at first sight, well, more like fourth sight uh, kind of connection that we get between the characters there harkens back to the melodrama, but it also taps into that noir element when you see um, what's his, I'm trying to get his name right. Gore, George. <laughs> I'm going to call him George. 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 When we see George, George, we see George walking melancholy back to his hotel in the evening. And we get the, the thing that makes like the really big noir vibes for me is we get this bartender who. It's just yes. na- narrating over the things that are happening and talking in the past tense. And the whole time we're just like, where is this going? Like he's, he's telling us a story that's happened. So this, this can't have a great ending, whatever happens. And uh, yeah, it just, that's does so much to heighten the atmosphere and kind of combine the two genres. Um, and also the love square of it all ties it back to the the melodrama we've got a lot going on uh marie's approach to relationships is um very interesting uh and i i don't know it's just yeah those those elements something as subtle as a narration or just a look or a moment of embrace when you're like i don't know about this uh really does uh show those influences and she's got femme fatale energy you know she, she i wouldn't say she's necessarily femme fatale but it's it's not too many steps away you can make some different story decisions and very quickly that character becomes a true femme fatale well I, and i think she is even even like you said without those decisions because to a degree and i don't want to blame her for this it's not her fault it's the men in the room's fault but becoming uh completely enamored with her you kind of end up destroying yourself uh when it sure. doesn't doesn't go your way so yeah but uh the alternate reality story version where uh she, she goes uh through the the uh the montreal with a with a carving knife is an, is another interesting uh what if i'm i'm one i'm really interested because you keep going to transit for your examples and I love that because I love transit. Um, but I am also, I, I 
think is that would you put that as that was my introduction not sure any kind of knowing way would you put that as the best place to really kind of get the full experience or do you i know this isn't how you experience so you can't fully tell it would that be too much to go in at that particular juncture or do you think that's the the best way to tackle pets all if anyone's listening they haven't watched any before and they're like well where could i start we watched yella barbara phoenix transit and undina um for this exercise i watched a few more but they were they were the core ones you watched is transit because you keep going to and it's the one that even is most kind of readily available to read is that do you think the one to start i think it is the one to start at i it is by a sliver my second favorite of his films it's incredibly Mm -hmm. close i mean it's it's almost indistinguishable, but I think it is the best entry point. I mean, it, it might be, even though it's not my favorite, it might, I think it's his best work, if that makes sense, because I think he ties together a lot of what he did early and in the middle of his career and create something wholly unique, like the playing around with the timeline and, and, uh, but relating it back to the Nazi occupation of France is just like a, a really unique device to tell the story and i think we get a a few callbacks to to some of his earlier films and or so maybe you shouldn't start with it but like i in transit um when george uh starts kind of his friendship with drees and his mother and, and strikes that up, it reminded me of, of Barbara and Stella and Barbara and their relationship in that film and, and how they sort of felt a connection to one another and Barbara felt the need to take care of Stella, George felt the need to take care of Dries. Um, so I, I feel like it's him tying together threads from some of his earlier films and and even Phoenix, obviously, with the... Uh, we get the... Uh, pre-ending of world war ii version of what um nelly nell i can't remember nelly Nelly, i had it right the first time has has to deal with there so i i really think it's just him can combining a lot of things that he's done keeping those same through lines in terms of tone and human connection melodrama noir and just making his most fully formed work so if you're like i don't know if i'm gonna like these films i would start with transit but I, I do think it was rewarding in the way I watched it, getting to call back to things I'd seen and enjoyed in, in other films. Uh, I I think the that you're right. I do keep calling back to it just because it it is it is probably his best work. I well, I also think, and we'll unpack this specifically in detail a little bit more later. Um, near the end because we'll have to put up a spoiler warning but I do think we'll have to talk about it I think your favorite is sealed by an ending and I think that is an ending that is just it's designed if if you had to design an ending to win over Andrew Snyder that is like it's textbook it's right in the wheelhouse of what's gonna it actually fits one of your all-time favorite endings in uh, a lot of ways the vibe is very different but just in terms of the general setup of if we were to just describe the events on screen and I won't do it just yet. We'll do it with a spoiler warning up later, but it does. It matches exactly one of your favorite endings that we've talked about before on this show. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Transit has a fantastic ending in that same vein as well, which we'll talk about once the spoiler warning is up. And it's funny that I let myself do this because it, 
an ending can become a tiebreaker for me. This is beside the pet sold point, but if I'm comparing films, the way it leaves me can be a tiebreaker if I'm saying I like this film sure. better than another. And I it, I'm necessarily it shouldn't necessarily be like that. Like the NC State baseball teams in the College World Series now, if they lose in the final, I shouldn't let that <laughs> diminish the amazing ride we've been on. But with Moon, well, listen. If the Milwaukee Bucks lose in the conference finals, Andrew, it's going to diminish. Some well, things. we're playing with house money, so I I agree. I completely agree with you. By the way, uh, between states of being awake and being asleep is how I watched Hawks Bucks last night. Uh, check your dosages, people. Um, uh, <laughs> Me too, but for very different uh, reasons. For literal states of being awake and being asleep. Yes, but back to the original point because. Uh, no, no dosages at the moment. Um, yeah, the a great ending can be the tiebreaker, but the problem with trying to separate films in his catalog by a great ending is he does not do bad endings, and we'll get into that later. Yeah. I have kind of a bullet point list here that I want to work through of just kind of teams, ideas, interests, preoccupations that we could say are, are at work throughout basically all of his movies tied them together. Like, some of them we've touched on, we can maybe go into in more detail. I don't want to just read you and everyone else a list, though, Andrew. I don't want this to be a lecture. So, off, you know, off the top of your head, what are the things to you that, if we were to say, okay, what what are Christian Petzold movies about? What is it he's grappling with? What are the devices he looks to use for his movies there's no right or wrong answers here but what are the things that come to mind kind of first and foremost for you um love during times of great stress like you said uh Mm -hmm. identity losing that sense of identity whether it's in appearance or occupation or ability health whatever it may be i think there are a few different films that to tie into that um uh, characters being placed at unfamiliar and frightening settings and seeing how they react. Uh, characters that can um, end up surprising themselves and the people that they've intersected with uh, just by interesting behavior. I'm thinking of Yella, uh, Transit, and Barber with that in particular. But yeah, there those are a few things that just kind of stick to mind. Uh and also, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like uh, a little light sprinkling of the supernatural. Yes. I mean, you've you've hit top on my particular list now was I had Ghosts and Phantoms. Because in Petzold's movies, all of his characters are... I was going to say they're either, but that wouldn't be true. All of his characters are haunted by their pasts. They all have a person or a thing in their past that's haunting them. In addition to that, all of the places where the movie is set are haunted by their own histories. There's just ghosts everywhere. Ghosts everywhere. He is completely and utterly obsessed to the point of being consumed by the idea of history and the weight of history and how people carry it over generations, and what it means, and what it does to people, what it does to places, how it impacts how people interact with each other. What is, say, the knock-on effect of that in a socioeconomic way? I think a large part of this is, it's not hard to understand in terms of his own kind of, his own background, and the 
the mixes of kind of refugee parents from the east himself having been born and raised in the west you can see this balance that is very tricky this balance of understanding you know what east germany was and what the east more generally was before the fall of the berlin wall and just the stark contrast between the systems in place where society was compared to you know the capitalist society in the west that i mean i think ultimately when things opened up swallowed up and are opened up swallowed whole um any kind of remnants of the ideas of east germany not that you know east germany was something that in its own right was you know needed to be preserved need to be kept in place but i think a lot of his movies are looking at this prism of how these great moments in history or these great societal movements they kind of just come they sweep through everything in its path and then what do they do what do they leave to that um very strongly anti-capitalist messages throughout his movies very strong anti-capitalist undertones i mean that was probably most striking for you in yellow where you started which is the movie that is most overtly about it because it's it's easiest to be because of when it's set and the world in which it's set compared to most of the others that i had you watch for this exercise but that certainly comes to the fore and for me all of that just it kind of it just branches down from a tree that starts with you know the ghosts of the past and all of these people have their ghosts (laughs) most of these people are in fact seeing ghosts some may in fact be ghosts you know (laughs) it's it's the thing that is at the heart of all of his stories without him being like a maker of ghost stories in some sort of you know very literal way i don't want someone to get the wrong idea and be like oh this guy makes all his movies about ghosts i like it you know i like I like some scary movies. I like movies about ghosts. It's it's not quite in that way, but that's his movies are just overrun for me with a sense of ghosts. Uh, one other thing that I suppose is very closely tied to that is all these films are underpinned by you know the trouble of trying to leave the past behind. So in various films that could be you know could be World War Two and Nazi Germany, could be the fall of the Berlin Wall. It could be kind of the Stasi's reign of terror. It could be um, the kind of aftermath of all of that and say the likes of the um, film you you haven't seen, The State I'm In, um, which is about a couple and their daughter. And the couple are former RAF Red Army faction terrorists and they're trying to basically, well, they're, they're somewhat trying to get away from that life. Um, and it's not easy and then even then you've got films like barbara and even in phoenix in some places and you've got abuse and you've got people trying to leave behind abuse from their past and live their life in in a kind of renewed and healthier way and it's not easy you know it's not easy to escape your past whether you're an individual or you're you're a country and i think that's very much at the fore of all of his work um, beyond that, I mean, I, I think we mentioned melodrama. I think the key thing for the melodrama is melodrama always brings a sense of the slightly surreal. Even if you think of more modern filmmakers who modern might be 
kind of I mean last time this director made a feature film was a little while ago now but David Lynch for example someone who's known for his melodramatic flourishes and his melodramatic I guess stories generally yeah most most Lynch movies are pretty melodramatic that kind of way of viewing a world or creating a world opens it up to the surreal and I think in Petzl's case it, it opens it up to like a kind of magical realism where the strange can happen and it, it doesn't feel completely out of place where you can bring in elements that are almost supernatural or that are mythical and it can all kind of coexist together. I think melodrama is actually a really strong uh, tool and a kind of strong foundation to be able to do that as a genre where a lot of other genres, you bring in some of the ideas that pets hold in these movies, the whole thing would just collapse on itself melodrama it can just hold up it's kind of it's so so aspirational and dreamlike and kind of heady and lost to begin with that you're on that journey you're on that ride with the characters with the movie you'll go along a little bit further you'll just you'll suspend disbelief that little bit longer and that's something that is really effective in petzold's filmography and then there is you know very very specific details details that some i now know about because i've done the research i've done the reading i've watched the films a couple of times i've watched the interviews i read interviews of petzl and you get some of the details of you know german history that you may not get them while you watch it for example when you watch undina and she is going through great detail about you know the the city planning of east berlin in this museum where she's she's working it's that doesn't mean anything to you or I beyond just the surface level of what it is, but his, his films across the board are just kind of really ripe with these details, really specific details. Their settings, I mean, they're not just, oh, it's somewhere in Germany. That may be, for the most part, how it is for you or I, because we are not German, but, you know, Yella is set in Hanover, which is known for its kind of financial industries, its industrialized kind of the way that industrialized capitalism has kind of just taken over that area and a certain kind of ethics and a certain kind of person has come to define that area and yes, bring prosperity for the people, but I, probably in a pet salt sense, part of the question would be at what cost and to what is ultimately the gain. Did you have something there? Frankfurt is a banking city. I learned this in a show about food and soccer. Continue. Yeah, that's true. Um, what else did I have? Mythology. Mythology. Mythology is obvious for one of these, but really it exists throughout. And there's just, beyond any of these things, what I love is just the general sense of fun that Petzold makes his movies and kind of just links them together, not in a way that's formal, but like when he talks about where transit ends and where it ends for uh you know what i should keep this bit for the spoiler part i was trying to think is there a way i could get this particular detail now no there is not um so i'll hold off on that just a just a little bit longer what about the style of these films is there anything that jumped out to you in terms of how they were made or the visuals of them i'm not looking for you know free to break out steady cam here or anything like that but just 
in terms of what you were seeing on screen, was there anything that was striking to you? Yeah, I can't remember if I said this to you offline or if, I re- if I'm going to repeat myself, but for me, what stood out about some of the like techniques and stylistic things that he, he does from film to film is a lot of the emotional resonance or just the context of the scene and how the characters re- are relating to one another, especially if you're someone like me, reading it off a screen that doesn't speak German, so it's effective in any language, I'm assuming, is just that the tight focus on the characters' faces and the movement of those characters. And as we talked about, he he casts such distinct-looking actors and actresses in these films, so with very expressive faces that can really convey the the romantic dramatic whatever it is moment so that's that's the thing that stood out to me is you just get these these close-ups of um of someone's face or some a zoomed in shot across like a, a walkway of a setting i'm trying to remember which film i'm thinking of here it might have been unadina where undina where where the two characters are walking you get that great piece of editing um, where her her ex, who the film opens with, with her at the coffee shop, and um, walks past a new car- partner, and you get this rapid cutting where the perspective changes. But they're in this embrace that were is that the the scene you're talking about? That's actually not, but it reminded me that it's part of it. But it reminded me of of what I was thinking of. So Paula Beer's character and Dana in this film is a I guess works for the. Berlin city planners giving like tours of the what the layout of the city and historical lessons on the architecture and where buildings once were where palace once was for former architecture of East Berlin would be just to be specific and then we'll get her or Christoph on a balcony and the camera will just kind of zoom and hone in on these areas and we also get it later his character's a industrial diver and we'll get similar almost shots under the water and and so just very specific focus on whatever the focal point of the scene is though it's generally the characters and how they're relating to the information they're giving one another yeah petzold is not someone who i feel like has a really kind of clearly defined visual style where you're like well he only likes to do this or this is the petzold gimmick but what I do think is he's just one of the smartest working directors when it comes to composition, when it comes to framing. And part of that is maybe fueled by the fact that it's not like he just has, oh, well, this is my favorite and I'm going to go to this. Because I think the point you're making there is absolutely true. It's just read the way that he manages to center his actors in kind of interesting ways in front of the audience's eye. And that can be close-ups and that can be in kind of really tight shots where you're exploring kind of, you know, the pores and crevices of their faces. And he hires endlessly interesting looking actors, endlessly beautiful looking actors generally too, but endlessly interesting beyond that. There, there's something with all of them that isn't just, you know, and here's a cheap way of saying it, that there, there's there's not a Hollywood beauty. There's something that's more authentic and more interesting to basically all of his leads. There's just there's always something that adds just a little bit more character. Um, there's just something that's a little bit more interesting that I don't think you know someone could just you know 
pick out of a catalog as such and be like, oh yeah, that's that looks like someone who should be in a movie. He, he finds something that's always just a little bit more, I guess, draws you in in a way that's different. It's it's not like anything else. They're clearly beautiful people. They've clearly got incredible screen presence, but it's it's not something where it's just like, oh, you're, I'm just looking at this person because they look good. There's there's more to it. There's character. But what he does with that too is like he could have these incredible long shots or it could be close-ups. He'll basically just take his time to move through a space. There's no there's no rush, there's no urgency. Never in a Petsol movie do you really get to a point where, you know, your editing rate is ramping up and it's it's become really fast cutting and the action is reaching fever pitch, even though there can be very dramatic events taking place in his movies he manages to do that without necessarily ramping it up in a lot of ways that our filmmakers would and i think the cumulative effect is one where it's just it's building a rapport for your audience with your your characters and there are beautiful shots of landscape in a lot of these films but he often uses actors like landscape and if an actor is you know if it's um if it's in Barbara where Nina Hoss is cycling for much of the film, kind of true, kind of almost countryside, like we get these shots where it, it's, it's almost like Barbara is blending into the background and it's, it's all of the one and you're, you're not just getting, Oh, we're, I'm going to cut away for some landscape here. Everything is always working towards the character. It's always reframing, making you see them in a different way, in a literal sense um, but it's always working from from beginning to end towards something new, towards something interesting, without ever being in a rush to get there. And I I really like that. Like there is something that at times in his movies feels like slow cinema, but he's just he never actually comes close to that. He's not the kind of director that is just gonna be inaccessible because things move way too slow. While at the same time, I think someone who doesn't watch a lot of maybe art house movies when they first come into contact with it, they'd be like, well, this is different. I maybe can't quite put my finger on it. I'm not just going to say it's really slow, but there is something there is something different about it. There's a patience. There's sometimes a languid kind of movement through a scene. And I think all of that is kind of pretty much signature at this point. Like he's, he's very clearly established his style. I mean, a key part of that is his production design too, whether he's working in contemporary settings or if it's period he tends to build his worlds in a certain way and i I will say as much as i love phoenix i i like barbara quite a lot and my appreciation grows every time i see it i love phoenix he captures the modern world in a way that i don't know of another director that can do that and i'm not entirely sure maybe it's just something that's kind of inaccessible for me or certainly something that I can't quite articulate but when I watch whether it's something like Yella which it both looks modern but it also doesn't feel quite of this world and that certainly you know applies to transit for more obvious reasons but you go back to Undina and that same thing is there again there's just something about the way he he frames he views contemporary spaces that is very very different and that's not very satisfying to not be able to be like, oh, well, it's different and this is why it's different. 
but I, I really have a tough time putting my finger on what it is. I just, I know it when I see it and it, it kind of leaves me quietly wowed each time because areas and kind of landscapes, backdrops that aren't necessarily the most interesting or exciting for a movie, he's finding something and he's making something more of them. Beyond the landscapes, I think it ties back to just the unique looks of these actors too because they have a way of just just their faces and i don't know if this comes down to uh makeup i don't know if it comes down to wardrobe whatever it may be but uh nina haas and ronald zerfeld yeah they look like they could be movie stars in the 1940s they look like they could be movie stars in the 2000s and they're they're both uh, the same thing with Paula Beer and Franz Rogowski. I'm just going to roll with it. You got it. You got bit bold and basically there. perfect there. I mean, that's that's his whole thing, though, is the timelessness. So uh, you're right to make that point with the actors. Yeah, uh, that was that was all I had on that. But uh, yeah, just um, and each of his films do kind of have that feel of being a, another world, even if you know, like, what setting it's supposed to be so i'm not saying this only applies to transit i think it's there in phoenix and barbara yella and undina as well um but yeah okay let's put up a spoiler warning because i really i'm gonna kind of not in a way that's gonna scare you here but i'm gonna throw this on you because i want you to kind of lead me on your journey your first viewing of a couple of these that you clearly you know, they really spoke to you, you really enjoyed them. So I want to talk a bit more freely about both Phoenix and Transit in particular. We'll, we'll see how we're doing time-wise. We might just do a tiny bit on Undina too. Um, but I'm mostly, I'm interested just for your perspective and with the ability to speak now freely, spoilers, plot details, whatever it is, what kind of comes to mind for you or what do you want to, to bring the t- to the table here and talk about with them? Is there anything that, um, for beyond the obvious, beyond some of the stuff that maybe we've touched on already, that makes these two films just that extra bit special, or means they they last in your memory that bit clearer? What is it about Barbara or Phoenix? You choose which you want to go with first. That really made them have such a strong impression for you. Well, I already do have a plan to take advantage of. Barnes and Noble's half-off Criterion sale to get the Criterion Blu-ray of Phoenix, so they have left a lasting impression on me, and I think they both uh, cover previously well-covered source material. I mean, the aftermath of World War II, the Holocaust, I mean, movies like uh, Schindler's List, um, obviously that recounts absolutely horrifying events and, and tries to take a look back at them, but I think it it frames those events and what they meant in a new lens, specifically in Phoenix. Now, that's a period-specific piece where we know we're living in a in a world and in a time frame that we remember as post-World War II Germany and people being freed from these concentration camps and returning home or returning to no one in, in, in many cases because families were ripped apart and trying to figure out some way to live their life in a world that is completely different than, than the one 
they started out in. And I think what, what Phoenix does through Nina Haas's character, Nellie, who was a Holocaust survivor and is coming back to Berlin after undergoing facial reconstruction sur- surgery with her friend, and she has no family left. She doesn't know where her husband is, and her friend tells her that her husband and kind of their friend circle were the ones that, that turned her in and and led to her ending up in a concentration camp. And she has to reconcile all these different feelings. First of all, a, a loss of a sense of identity and a sense of self because obviously she's spent all that time being dehumanized. And also, because of the facial reconstruction sur- surgery, she doesn't she doesn't feel like herself. I mean, I'm... I, I mean, imagine looking in the mirror every day and trying to, you know, get your life back together, but you're not even you. And I think it's just it covers that in such a haunting and delicate way. And it's also just just a intricately, intricately woven kind of slow burning thriller to an extent, because we've got this narrative hanging over us where we do wonder if her husband, Johnny, is the one that turned her in. She still has a mystery to solve, but she still has so much love for him. And then once he's reintroduced into the story and doesn't recognize her and a a scheme to get her inheritance takes off, it just becomes a really interesting character study and a, a thriller, really. You want to get to the end of the string and see how it's all gonna tie together. And I think all that mixed together and just the way that they successfully pull off a um, punch to the gut ending is really what made Phoenix land so strongly for me. And is something that I think when I think of Petzl, it'll be Phoenix that probably lasts out in my mind, even if I also have strong feelings about transit. Nina Haas's performance of speak low, that final scene is that it's just incredible. It's, Endings do not get better than what Petzold does in Phoenix. You get the feeling of kind of everything has built to that moment. Like you're getting real payoffs that in a movie of this type, you may not always get. It's really kind of, you mentioned intricate. It's intricately plotted. Easy for me to say. Um, To get to that point and to reveal in that way and then to do it in such a deeply touching and affecting way it does kind of leave you, you know, lost for words is one thing, but it kind of takes your breath away. Like it's, it's an incredibly shocking moment and ending, even though I think it's building to, and probably confirming the kind of suspicions of the audience will have. You just can't necessarily imagine the whole thing coming together and revealing itself in the way that it does through that song. Um, which again is something that obviously has been really nicely woven into the story from earlier on, but it is, it's kind of for all of the ways like that. I mentioned this earlier, that vertigo is a very clear reference point here. And the idea of this man remaking um, in, in what he believes the image of, you know, his dead wife remaking this other woman into um, the image of a, a dead or a lost love is, just fascinating and deeply haunting material to begin with, even more so given the context of, you know, the time setting and the fact that as far as he's concerned, well, Nelly has basically gone off to a concentration camp and has likely not returned. And that that's that, you know, it's, 
a really kind of it's a real high wire act i just think to get all of this with the subject matter and then just with the actual skill required to weave all of this together first of all on a screenplay level but then to actually really pay it off with your direction with your shots and with how it's staged and i don't think i don't think phoenix could have done any better i don't think any movie can really do that much better than phoenix it's a truly truly breathtaking ending transit do you or do you have any more on phoenix i think i summed up everything i had on phoenix uh i will yeah th- one of my favorite endings ever it's not literally but pretty close to a mic drop moment <laughs> at the very end mm-hmm. we get the slow reveal of the the number on her arm it's just all so well done and uh really leaves you in a spot where like you said you're going wow transit again um covers I guess mid World War Two, in such an interesting way because it casts, like as we mentioned earlier, it casts the events in a uh, in a modern setting, where it really makes you feel like you're almost in an alternative reality because you, you know the Nazis are occupying France and this should be 
the 1940s, but it's we see the modern cars whizzing by, and some people are, are, are dressed in a more modern way. We we know that um, this world resembles a world we know, but it's something completely different. And I think this is another one of those films that really um, taps into the the melodrama that Petzold leans into in a lot of his films. Just the the weight of the events around all the characters as uh, George is trying to flee to Marseille and then potentially Mexico, the, the, the weight of the situation around them is enormous, but so is the connection he's making with Paula Beer's character, Marie. It's there's a something pulling him towards her and, and there's something pulling him towards uh, Dries and his mother and the relationships and the connections that he's making in Marseille are almost, almost outweigh the, kind of fear and panic to to get out which is uh, a really interesting compare and contrast there and i think the the performances in transit are incredible franz rakowski as i mentioned um earlier i think is just such a such a unique screen presence and and you just can't take your eyes off him in in any scene that he's in paula beer uh, as well i think all of that mixed together is kind of what makes this um Laying with me, and also we do get another gut punch, take your breath away ending, that leaves us on an even <laughs> even more ambiguous note than some of uh, Petzold's other films. And I think in all of his films, even though, like you said, there they might be, um, you know, make you think of slow cinema or slow burning films, but every time you get to the end of a Christian Petzold film the last scene leaves you feeling satisfied with the journey you've been on. And every moment after another moment adds weight to something you saw three scenes before. Um, I think Phoenix and transit are as close to perfect movies as you can get. I mean, uh, I, I tend to, <laughs> I tend to be someone that when we have these discussions or when you recommend something to me, I might overwhelmingly, praise something and it's i think i i, I need to become uh develop more of a critical eye when i'm going through these, these exercises but phoenix and transit are, are films that i couldn't do that with i just think they're so well crafted that um yeah that's that's pretty much all i have on that <laughs> yeah i think the thing with transit what which it's kind of really representative of in terms of his his filmography he always ends his movies which sounds like quite a simple thing to say, but he always ends them. May not be ending them with like a full stop or a period, but he he ends them. You know, he ends them in a place that's very purposeful. You're never left with a like, well, why has he ended it there? For as much as you may not be entirely clear, or there may be a level of uncertainty that's left intentionally hanging in the air, there's real purpose to the film's ending at the point where they do that i don't think as an audience member you could ever be left in doubt of oh okay like he's ending it here because of this like i think that's always very apparent and in transit i mean there's there's probably the possibility to end it five minutes earlier in a much more conventional way but in a way that doesn't really fit the core themes of the story or really just the kind of story he's looking to tell. And that is that he wants to create this very kind of literal then 
idea of Marie as as a specter, as as a phantom that's lingering in the story beyond the point where really she necessarily is. Like I think on screen this is pretty ambiguous. I don't know if if you have I might as well just ask you. Maybe it'll make for good podcasting, Andrew. Do you have a read on this ending? Is there something to you that you saw this and you took as your understanding of it? It's there's no pressure if there's nothing uh kind of groundbreaking you feel like that you have at your fingertips. Uh honestly my reading is definitely not correct, but I view it more along the lines of him being completely consumed by her memory that he's kind of started to just break and the delusional smile has broken out over his face. Yeah, well I mean that's I think pretty close to it one way or another or he's so kind of lost in that moment or in some sort of idealized version of what life could be like or really just maybe a fantasy world in an attempt to escape the realities of the world around him. But, I mean, Petzold, the only place I've really seen him speak very definitively about this is in regard to Undina, because the point he makes is that transit for him ends with Marie dying on the Montreal at sea. The ship goes down, she's on the ship, that's where she meets her end only for us to then see her resurfacing from the water in Undina. And for him, that was something that he was kind of having this playful idea with, that, you know, the same two actors could come and repair, and you've got Franz Rogowski as the diver then searching for her, having basically lost her at sea at the end of this film, which is a really kind of interesting, just kind of true line between the two. And I think... On rewatches, it's not something we could really flag up earlier because you'd be spoiling transit. But I think on rewatches, or if anyone at some point wanted to go through his filmography, I think that informs Undina in an interesting way and the two of them as a double bill where they're not necessarily kind of directly linked in terms of teams or content. As we already mentioned, I think Yella is in a lot of ways closer to Undina in that way. There is something very interesting about watching these two actors go on this journey with Petzl across these two movies and the ways that the two actually do mesh into one in terms of story and in terms of the hold that the characters have over them and I mean we we see it again really and we see it reverse the times in Undina the kind of psychological hold that the love for the other has on each character and it it just kind of makes for a really kind of fascinating mix between the two you don't see this very often it's rare like i'm trying to think now off the top of my head it is something that used to happen quite a bit but maybe not even quite like this where your lead male your lead female and your director are the same like you'll have you know director who may have favorite collaborators and maybe there could be multiple cast members but even if there was the same actor and actress just because they may have been kind of joint leads in one it doesn't mean that one wouldn't necessarily be saying a supporting role in the next film to kind of have this same dynamic in place and intact from movie to movie into very different films is really really interesting and i think i loved the the ending of transit when i first saw it but i only kind of like it and i'm even more intrigued and interested in it 
by Undina and by getting to see these two actors work together again, which they've great chemistry and there's something that really works about them as a pair on screen. Um, but also just, this is what Petzl likes to do. Like, this is what he went back to the well over and over again with Nina Haas. Um, also, Ronald Zerfeld is someone else who, again, multiple of the movies, we see that kind of dynamic build and we see that play out. I think there's something that really works there. I mean, Petzold himself has spoken about like being pretty eager to get back to working with Nina Haas, but they both felt like you know it was good for their partnership that they take a bit of a break that might last another couple of years. But it does seem like at some point they'll reunite too. It just it adds an extra layer that it's not entirely kind of outside of the text. I mean, you do have to have seen all of the movies, but if you have any kind of knowledge, it kind of seeps in and out from being textual and metatextual in a really interesting way that I don't think there's too many other filmmakers working at the moment or actors working with them where that's the case. Anything else? Uh, nothing else on mine. I think we've found ourselves in another situation where... Um... Just in general, uh, exposing yourself to an entire filmography for a filmmaker you've never seen, I think, or not entire filmography in Pestle's case, but you know, giving yourself the uh, bulk, the the bulk of his feature filmography. Yeah, just diving into something like that, and especially seeing these films back to back to back to back, or whatever it may be, I think get, gives you a unique lens to to see their work through. And so we've done that a few times now, and every time it's been successful. And I think this this is probably uh, the peak of that, just edging out Chloe Zhao and Kelly Ruckert. Mm, interesting. Um, the one thing that I'll mention that I don't think we've said so far, this is true of, it's true of Phoenix as well, but it really comes to the fore in transit. Uh, Stefan Ville's score for Transit is just in my brain for years. I just cannot shake it loose. It's just an incredible piece of music, an incredible piece of music for a kind of mystery suspense film, which really it is for something that's very noirish. It's just one of my favorite pieces of score from any film ever made. It really it just it lives permanently in my brain. I'll just hum it on a random day at any given moment. And it makes life more interesting, Andrew, if you just imagine your day-to-day goings on to that score. But even in moments in the likes of Phoenix where there are score, and it is Stefan Ville who does collaborate with Petzl when he uses score, although it's very rare. He's more likely to have a kind of a couple of really interesting needle drops at some point, but mostly rely on kind of ambient or diegetic sound for for the most part but that's just one thing that i don't think we have mentioned that i it would be remiss of me if i didn't because i love that score so much but yeah i I think that's all i've got so andrew we are going to pick things right back up with terence malik we are next week we have on the docket the new world the tree of life Voyage of Time, and A Hidden Life. I have just kind of loosely grouped those films together. I feel like they're the best the best partners. I mean, in part, we're moving into the post-hiatus um, stage of 
Malik's career and post comeback with the Tin Red Line. But I do think a hidden life, certainly. I mean, Voyage of Time is is linked to the Tree of Life, so they make sense paired together. But I do think a hidden life has a lot more in common with the New World and the Tree of Life than it does with To the Wonder and Ida Cup, Song to Song, which we will do those three in the the final episode of our Malik series. But those four movies next week, uh, we'll see what way we go. Maybe we'll. We probably won't get to watch both versions of Tree of Life. I don't want to put that pressure on you, but we might agree on one version or the other. And we'll go from there. That sounds good. Yeah, my uh, my rational sports schedule often getting in the way of watching films. Should um, I, I probably should also give a heads up for a new feature we're going to introduce in the weeks ahead. And our current plan is we're going to do Malik next week. We're going to do Malik again the week after that and finish off that series. The episode after that, we are going to introduce a new, um, a new feature. And we're going to do our first book club episode. We have some ideas for this kind of mapped out. So this is something that over the next whatever length of time, we'll probably dip into pretty regularly the first one i gave andrew options this was andrew's pick first pleasant surprise i gave him some options that would have been very comfortable for andrew he could have really dived into some of his favorites some easy territory but first up in the book club will be the big goodbye chinatown the last years of hollywood by sam wasson this is of course a book about the legendary chinatown directed by roman polanski we will talk about Chinatown, the movie. We will talk about the book, The Big Goodbye. And I believe the book is being adapted into a series, or is it a movie? I, I'll have to get that straight and figure it out. But Ben Affleck was involved in adapting this in some way. So that will be an extra layer to it. So roughly two to three weeks' time, I would say, is the, the timeline where we'll end up with that. The Big Goodbye, Chinatown, the last year is a Hollywood. If you've seen Chinatown, then you'll probably already be pretty interested in that. Maybe you've read the book. If you haven't, then it's something you've always wanted to get around to. Here's your chance. Pick up a copy of The Big Goodbye and watch Chinatown, and we'll be diving into that soon. You know, I could also... I could tip up what will be the next book after that, because I think this one is pretty obvious, and that's one that I was just talking about you before we started recording, because it's arrived for me. And that is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the novel. It's a movie that both of us absolutely adored. We will revisit it, and we will revisit it with the fresh eyes of also having read Tarantino's novelization. So that will be a little bit further down the line. But again, if you're thinking of you know getting involved with our book club or you're looking for stuff to read, that is something we'll be visiting over the course of the next couple of months at some point. So the big goodbye and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the novel. Are you excited for our new venture? I know it's some extra discipline we're both going to need with our homework, but I think it could be fun. Yeah, I don't have to write an essay at the end, so uh, <laughs> I welcome this homework. In this in this next paragraph, I will discuss Jack Nicholson. All right, so all of that is to come. We hope... You enjoyed listening to this episode and you've come on the, the Pets All journey with us. Maybe you've discovered a new filmmaker that you really like too. And we hope you'll rejoin us for Malik and for all the other good stuff coming soon.
as always, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss any of those future episodes of Captured in Celluloid. And you can follow us on Twitter at Captured on Cell. That's where you can get in touch with us with any questions, comments, queries, whatever it might be. And that's where you know we share all the episodes as they drop. If you're not a kind of subscribed to podcast person, you can always find our tweets there. Until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. Bucks and six.